So you you that's, uh, when, he, that's lot, when he had hair. Yeah. A lot a lot has changed for you since I met you. We um you were originally uh working so how do okay, so we met on the bike, racing. We met on the bike, yeah. You were this big mouth, loud angry man. Angry man that shouted at everyone but did absolutely no work. Yeah. Typical sprinter. <laughs> yeah. Typical sprinter. Chase everyone down. But you could sprint. But I calmed down you after kicked- a while. Yeah, you were extremely aggressive. I was, wasn't I? Wow. I was like, oh, I want to punch you in the face. <laughs> but I also kind of was like, all right, maybe he's, you know, he's working through some some things. Some issues. Let's, uh, let's go and have a chat to him. Yeah. And then we started riding. And then we started hanging out. Hanging out a bit more. I used to tell you off in races all the time, didn't I? All the time, you didn't even know me. You started swearing at me. I was like, who, who is, mate, I'm going to get off and club you in a minute. Yeah. It was yeah. quite funny. It I was think, quite funny. But yeah. I think when I started cycling, Maven, I, I, used, I chilled a bit, didn't I? Yeah. It's taken a while. I think you've probably been the most chilled now that you've had Jack and yeah. you, you're a bit more clearer in what you want to do. And, yeah, I think being a parent changes you. And It does, and, yeah. And you, um, but I think a lot of the can't. mavens haven't seen that side of me, the fiery sprinter side, yelling at people. Yeah, it's it's funny. Um, it's it's completely different. It's completely out of character for me. I think it only happens in bike races where I get fiery. Yeah, you've uh, you get frustrated. Yeah, it's uh, it, it it's it's a scary thing to be a part of. You don't always want to be uh, in the firing line. Uh, But um, we're all competitive people and I understood it for what it was. It was just passion. Yeah. Rather than a genuine kind of desire to... Kill people. Kill people. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Mate, a lot has changed for you. Back in those days you were were in the airline industry? Yeah, private jets, aviation... I'll drive. never forget that private jet trip that we did. Oh yeah, how good was that? That what? Yeah, we flew over to Perth, didn't we? Mm. Yeah, we, I was doing a tour, music tour. Um, so the so the jet was free on one of the legs, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, so obviously you didn't pay for it. Yeah, that's right. Because <laughs> so, it would have been what would it have been? Maybe seventy thousand dollars. Yeah, to fly to Perth. Just a um, once in a lifetime experience. Yeah, I mean, not many people are ever going to be on a. What fifty million dollar? What was it? Global Express or yeah. a Gulfstream? Gulfstream was yeah, it? Yeah, I think it was a Gulfstream Four. Yeah, it was G Four Fifty. Yeah, Gulfstream Four Fifty, and we were doing a music tour, I think, for Carlos Santana, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He so was just touring. and just to explain to the guys, it was because he, the plane had to get to Perth to fly Carlos back. That's right. So the the tour was starting in Perth, yeah. and the aircraft lives in Melbourne. That's right. So it had and to get I said, over there. Yeah. D- don't worry, mate. Don't worry. Like, don't try and justify it. It's okay. <laughs> like, it's called an empty leg. It's paid for. It's all above board. Yeah. There were no bribes. Yeah, there were no bribes. <laughs> it's, um, yeah. I mean, that, that was one of the perks. It's, and especially in Europe, there's so many aircraft and in the US that there's always these empty legs positioning and depositioning back to base and so you'd always pick up these that's how i used to do all of my adventures on bikes um through europe like i'd see oh there's a london to 
south of France and I'd jump on that and then I'd ride back to London. Or there was a, there was a, a, a Le Bourget to um, Luton, so from Paris to London, and I'd ride over to Paris and then jump on the plane back. Or, you know, and there were all these great yeah, ways of just start. flopping around um, Europe and the US. So, yeah, it was great that we were actually able to share that. And Hannah came and, oh, who else? Who, did I? We had a few other crews too. Yeah, and, yeah, I mean, the flight attendant and the two pilots are mates of mine as well, yeah. which is pretty cool. Yeah. And, um, yeah, one of them is a South African guy, Mike Dawson, and Dominic Strati is uh, the chief pilot. Um, yeah, so, no, it was really nice to be able to do that. I did that with a few other friends uh, in Sydney as well. We did Sydney, Melbourne, Melbourne, Sydney. Yeah. Flew them down and they got to see Elton John and that was pretty special. They're now yeah. married and I think yeah. he proposed uh, on, the, on, the plane. on the plane. Actually, yeah, a friend of mine proposed to his now wife as we were coming into Paris on a really beautiful uh, Boeing business jet, a BBJ. So you can imagine this is like... 130 seat aircraft that's been converted into just a business jet. Can you imagine? Wow. So like a like a 737 800 that you fly on from Melbourne to Sydney. Yeah. But um it's got a shower, a stateroom, like a bedroom um and then just deluxe first class suites. Just seeing how the other half live, man. Yeah. It's so yeah. good. It's you a glimpse. You get little glimpses into how rich people live with the experiences like that. Yeah, it can it can be a, a terribly kind of upsetting <laughs> experience at the same time because yeah. you're like, oh, my goodness, I've got to go back. Because remember, we flew back economy. <laughs> That's right, we did too. <laughs> like Jetstar. Uh, we were like, oh, we were, we're hating life. We're back in reality. <laughs> back to reality with a bloody hard <laughs> hard whack. Oh, God. I think we flew Jetstar or something, <laughs> all cramped up in the <laughs> next to each uh, other. No, and we'd had about five beers at, yeah. the, at the bar. And So originally from South Africa, were you racing in South Africa? You were doing triathlons, were you? I was, yeah. I mean, I was, I was swimming a lot. I swam as uh, as a as a nipper, South African lifesaving. A um, lot of lot of galas, swim galas, and racing, open water swimming. Um, but you know, the religion in South Africa is cricket and rugby. So, yeah, I was I was playing a lot of those sports and hockey, and um, yeah, a lot of track, track and field, a lot of tennis, a lot of squash. And this is in Durban. Uh, well, I was born in Durban, then went into Swaziland, um, then into Western Cape down close to Cape Town. And then I was in the Northwest, um, close to Joburg, Pretoria, um, and then up closer towards the Botswana kind of border. So can you speak Afrikaans? I can. Can you? Yeah. So half the family is actually Afrikaans. Is that right? Yeah. So ons prari so, yeah, I speak, um, when I speak English, I sound like Prince Harry. And <laughs> when I speak Afrikaans, I sound very Dutch, eh? Like I've come uh, straight from uh, South Africa, where I was born. Uh, been living there since I was uh, two times twice, a uh, little grasshopper. Yeah, I'm a proudly South African, Australian 
British. So what inspired you to move to Australia? Um, Australia is very much like South Africa, just doesn't have any of the real political, um, racial or violent crime issues that South Africa seems to be plagued with. A lot of, vi- a lot of violence, a lot of people walking up to cars and carjacking. And- yeah, I think there's a rape every 58 seconds, a murder every 36. So if you think about that, how long we've been talking and those statistics just in the time that we've sat down, um, a lot of people's lives have changed for the worse. Um, yeah, like a, every South African will probably have a story about guns, carjackings. I've seen and heard stories. I've been part of some not-so-nice stories. Yeah, so. I heard of a, uh, a guy very recently riding his bike and, um, you know, carbon fiber bike. And dude come up and shot him twice and stole his bike. I mean, he survived, but it's a bike. Do you know what I mean? It's crazy. It's crazy you can be riding along and then some dude can come up and shoot you and steal your bike. Yeah, it just shows you how desperate um, people are. Um, there's a lot of people out there that don't have access to education, um, to running water, to to food, um, and you know, if you're put in a position like that and you see those that have so much and then you're one of the people that have so very little, um, you're, I, I guess you're going to be put in a position where you, you will take in order to survive and then you're the moral compass kind of, Comes into ways. question, it, and that's uh, that's a deviates. good. Yeah, it's a good point you made. They actually, you know, referring to even the the, the Holocaust with some of the Germans that were uh, handling the Jewish people. You know, the, the, a lot of ordinary Germans were doing horrific things, and so it just goes to show the psyche of 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 human nature doing just horrible things when put into those circumstances. Yeah, um, that's very heavy, very deep topic to to cover. Um, yeah. Something I I just find with South Africa is you've got a lot of a, a long history. I mean, South Africa was colonized in the 17th century. Uh, the Dutch and the English were there in the 1650s, um, and it's been plagued by a lot of racial issues that. Since 1994, when the African National Congress came into power with Mandela becoming president and us avoiding a, a, a pretty terrible kind of almost war between white and black South Africans, um, it just doesn't seem like we're able to move past history repeating itself. Um, and now it just seems it's flipped to the other way where you've got a lot of um, still got a lot of people without access to education. Um, it's like survival of the fittest, but you've also got this very kind of very visible class divide where you will see people driving beautiful fancy cars and out in lovely expensive restaurants and then you'll see 
people living in absolute squalor just across the road in shanty towns and shacks. Mm. Yeah, and it's just, I guess that's kind of, for me, I just watch this continuing and I guess I'm part of the problem because instead of trying to stay in South Africa and fix fix it, I made the choice that it's not going to be fixed in my lifetime and I made a very selfish decision to leave. Um, it's something I think about a lot. And I guess when you're, when you're young, you kind of, you want to change the world, you know, mm. you want to be, um, you want to make a difference. And I still feel that way, but I also think that this, this, you have such a short time on this earth as well. Mm. And you go, are you going to dedicate your, your life to try and fix hundreds of years of issues and will it even be fixed in your lifetime? Mm. I don't think so. And what I've seen since 1994 to where we are now, you know, we're like 24 years later and I haven't seen an improvement. It's a third world country with a first world economy. It's extremely rich in gold and diamonds and platinum, converts... That's coal crazy. into oil. It's got some brilliant minds. First heart transplant was done in South Africa. Dr. Chris Barnard got some really smart people. Um, South Africans are, I think, kind of bettered other countries by leaving. You know, they're all in Canada or in the US or in London, in the UK. Most of Perth is pretty much a South African colony. You go to Sydney and there's just little towns that speak Afrikaans. Mm. Um, it's a real shame. Yeah, I'm just looking here on Wikipedia. 50 people a day are murdered in South Africa. 50 people a day. Yeah, and that's just murder. That And that's just murder. It was one in three people have HIV, I think, so HIV AIDS. Um, yeah, it's it's a real... Shame that you have such a beautiful country with such beautiful people. Um, just uh, crazy in such a such such terrible circumstances. Anyway, let's get away from the morbid uh, the morbid truths of the world that we live in, and uh, and and push on to some more fun things. More well, that's what things. that's pretty much how I live my life these days. <laughs> <laughs> um, Indie pack. I have to reflect because it was, it was, I did the first indie pack. Yeah, what a um, year! Hey? What a year um, wow. was was highs and lows in that year, as we all know. Yeah, but um, in in terms of the race itself, because you did the 2017 and the 2018 version of the race. Yeah, how was say to Adelaide? All I can speak of is my experience to Adelaide. Yeah, how was the ride in those in those first couple of weeks? in comparison to the first year because I know you know it was friggin' we had wind. We had uncharacteristic mm. wind and rain mm. in it the first year. It was very cold. It was very it was cold. Windy, windy and it was wet. Yeah. Second year was much nicer temperature-wise. It was a bit warmer. There wasn't the rain, which is great. There was a lot of wind. Was it? Oh, across the Nullarbor there was so much wind. Really? Headwind? Headwind for three days. I think I was averaging 17 k's an hour. It was tough. Very, oh, very tough. Like it hurt a lot of people. Like some guys 
guys and girls that were just like, I can't deal with this. The mental side of it just gets to you. It does. If you experience, and this is the only circumstances that you'll get to experience something like that, but if you go out for a three-hour ride and you've got a headwind for the whole three hours, it'll crack you. Mm. But you try and do three days of headwind, which is what we had in the first year Mm. as well. Mm. You try and do three days, 12 hours a day of headwinds and it will destroy you mentally. Yeah. And physically it, it can, cause you're carrying all your equipment. Some, some people also push too big a gear as well and their body's not used to that and it can mess up your knees and your Achilles and you know, your, your body's all beaten up so early on. And then your mind's going, gee, I'm only, I'm day three. Mm. <laughs> and I feel like this, what am I going to be like? in day five, day 10, day 16. So, yeah, I mean, they they were completely different. I mean, the first year I had some real issues with the silly saddle height um, error that I made because I used these different cleats. Even though I was running the same speed play pedal, I used these like walkable aero cleats and they were a bit shallower. So it actually increased my leg length and it it really, I'm very susceptible to any change in my bike fit. So my knees just blew out. And, um, yeah, so the first indie pack, I was, I don't know if you remember, I was at the back um, crawling into Norseman when I met you. Yeah, and, I do. I, I was, it, I was, I came into Norseman that night that you, you arrived. Yeah. And I was just thinking, God, because you were going one leg. I think yeah, I was pedaling. on one leg just pedaling away. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think we had a bit of a cuddle and uh, we saw Rupert. We saw Rupert, yeah. Saw we saw beer and, and had a beer and a bit of a It was chat. a good night, that. I quite it enjoyed was. Norseman. Yeah. Um, it was good to catch up with everyone. There was about five of us sitting around having dinner. But Rupert's book. Oh, yeah. Great, great tales. It was a good reminder yeah. of I had a good read. Did you read it? Yeah. Yeah. I read it in a weekend and just kind of it was a nice way of looking back on my own race, but also understanding his experiences of the two crossings yeah, and for him getting closure on completing it um, in the second attempt. We'll link uh, Rupert's, Rupert Guinness's book in the show notes in the, in the description yeah. below. But um, if you haven't, you haven't read it yet, he's um, Rupert is a fantastic writer. He's one of the, Original cracking humans. He is an absolute legend, isn't Big he? C, yeah. And it was a be- it was an awesome read. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, um, and he's brought out another book, which is about two hundred years um, of Australian cycling history. Huge book. I don't know where he finds the time to do. He's all written this like stuff. twenty books. I he's been in. He's been a sports journalist. For those of you who don't know who Rupert Guinness is, um, he's covered the Tour de France. Oh. Tw- over 20 over times 20, he's inducted yeah. into the Hall of Fame for journos yeah. um, to do with the tour and the ASO. Yeah, and he's also been a big rugby supporter and sailing and he used to write for The Age um, and he's still uh, a journalist that is contracted around the world and does stuff with SBS and for US um, shows as well. I think sport and sporting, uh, televised sport and commentary. and Yeah, it works for crossing the line now. But it, yeah. he is amazing. And he's also done a lot of the, the other Grand Tours, the Giro and a few of the other races, the um, the Vuelta. Yeah, so, and the Spring Classics. and 
but but great reading and but getting back to you and the and the indie pack you you yeah. managed to finish for a second time yeah um, finished them both um the first one took a bit of time um i think it was 20 <laughs> 21 days or something um so yeah 3 weeks and then this year i did it in 17 17 so, days that's amazing so it was a bit quicker it was about 365 k a day average yeah. Um, so you know what that's like to try and do day after day. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, then I had the stupid idea of having five weeks recovery and then flying to Oregon in the U.S. and taking on the transcontinental, uh, the Transamerica, and then four weeks recovery and trying to take on the transcontinental. But, um, yeah, I didn't realize I was on the bike in that TT position across Australia for so long, I'd actually given myself a urinary tract infection, tried to get rid of that. My girlfriend at the time was a doctor and she very kindly gave and prescribed me and realised what was going on and tried to clear it for me as quickly as she could um, with antibiotics and I just stayed off the bike. Unfortunately, and I had all this like trapped nerves in my arms and my neck was mangled. And I had this wonderful physio, um, Naomi um, Williams, who's Ren. I don't know. She's, if you know her, she's a cyclocross and cross country mm. cyclist. Um, she's very, very good. Mm. But she's a great physio as well. And um, she's like trying to fix my hands and these trap nerves through my neck and shoulders and get me ready. And poor old Isabel is trying to is worried, sick about this urinary tract infection and I'm trying to plan Transamerica. Like, and Jesse's going, come on, mate, you can do this. You can do the triple crown. You can do Indypac, then Trans Am, then TCR. And, you know, think of it as a business trip. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what I tried to do this year. And uh, I tell you what. Are you going to have a crack again this year? Not of the triple crown. No. Nah. It's has anyone done the triple crown? Well, I don't think so. No one's done it. Well, no one's done the Indie Pack, the Trans America, and the Transcontinental. And the Transcontinental. And for those that don't know, the Indie Pack is in Australia. It's a race from Perth to to Sydney. The Trans America is from California. No, from Oregon. Oregon. Yeah, Portland. Across, across across America, across America, and the transcontinental, yeah, and the transcontinental is from the top from of Belgium down to Greece. Okay, yeah, yeah, and so you know, equally uh, as challenging, that I suppose they have their own yeah. challenges. I think the Trans America is one of the hardest. That it's was a, hard, was it? Oh, mate, talk to me, D- brother. There is so much climbing. You cross over the Rockies, you do s- nearly 7,000 kilometres and 88,000 metres of climbing. Are you kidding? That's ludicrous. It's a lot, my, my man. And, and that's in the first half of the ro- A lot of that's in the first half the of the lo- race. Uh, yeah, it starts off with all that climbing and then you go through like Kansas and then you the Appalachians and the Ozarks. I tell you what, it scarred me. Did it? Oh, Mate, it, I mean, racing these things, just doing one is 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 challenging. 
and you need like six months off and, you know, giving yourself five weeks and trying to race it and have a red hot go at three, you know, I've never said no. I have a, I have a real difficulty saying no to things and I'm not scared of taking on big challenges. I've never really been daunted by that sort of thing. But yeah, that trying to do three, like I know the Trans Am is super hard, but the way that I went into it, I was a broken arrow at the start line, you know, but I was full of excitement and it was such a great adventure and it was a wonderful opportunity and I might never get that opportunity again. So who am I to say no to something like that? And I just went for it. But unfortunately, like, gosh, in the I, I had knee issues again. Yep. Which really frustrated me. And I, then, I remember seeing a picture of you with your legs in the air. I think, but this was at the Transconti. You getting mm-hmm. some surgery on your gooch, was it, or was this at the Transamerica? I had surgery twice this year, man. I've had three staph infections. Um, yeah, it's not been a wonderful year. <laughs> um, yeah, I got cut open um, about 700 Ks from the end of the Transamerica. And, yeah, my body was just unable to deal with all of the saddle sores um, that I was getting. I got a really bad abscess and got a bit sort of septic and I was rushed into A&E. I, well, I wasn't rushed. I rode there on my bike, parked it outside and walked into A&E and said I need – I need to see a doctor very urgently because I think I've done some damage to myself and uh, collapsed in a heap. And, yeah, the guy cut me open. Um, but unfortunately they did this ultrasound on my on my berries and they, I was complaining with all this like hard mass, lumped mass near my guns. Mm. And, you know, I had three people and this beautiful doctor was like playing around there and, these guys with mobile ultrasound devices were fiddling around in there and they missed, like he cut me open, he jammed all this gauze up there like, and then gave me all these antibiotics um, and then I had to ride back to the hotel and I was on such strong opiates at the time. I collapsed for over a day. People were like, are you okay? What's going on? You haven't moved, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I was like, what am I going to do now? Like the triple crown is over if I do not finish. I don't care if I'm no longer in the race, but I still want to finish this ride. And I had this mad idea that I could just get healed, you know, come back from the surgery and I'll be in New York setting up this new bike shop that we've got, Malia Malia Rosa Mm. in Brooklyn, go set that up and then – go to the UK, see Jordan, and then start the transcontinental. I was like, yeah, yeah, it's all fine. Got five weeks, four weeks, no worries. So I stood up um, for 650Ks because uh, I couldn't sit down. Are you kidding? No. And I, it took me three days to come right. And then I was like, the human body is an amazing thing. We can do this. It just stops. It starts with one pedal rotation and I don't care if it takes me 10 days to do 600 Ks. I what will are, finish this bloody thing. What do they say? They say that, yeah, the mind gives up long before the body. That's right. 
uh, well, the body gives up long before the mind. Well, no, <laughs> they say that they say the mind you'll quit. So something like that, you'll quit. Oh, you'll quit mentally before you can. You're only slightly. I think it was Rich Roll actually, in one of his podcasts, was saying that you'll quit mentally long before your body will quit. That is not true in the case of Rhino. <laughs> My body gave up and packed up a long time ago, <laughs> but I still, I, I was adamant I was going to finish that. And it's, I've never actually not finished something. It's, it was very confronting for me to realize when I got to Europe, because I, I did finish and I got to Yorktown in Virginia and I just stood up for 650Ks and I finished. And, I, and people were like, you're crazy. And I went, this is pretty normal. Like, if you want to do something, go out and do it. Like, don't make excuses for the reasons why you didn't do something. Find something to carry you forward. And for me, I was like, the Triple Crown is important to me and I'm part of a cycling culture that, takes on challenges and most of the time we uh, we complete them. And you still finish 33rd out of... Oh, mate, don't even look at the results. Out of 58. You know, some of, some of the people, Peter Anderson won that race in 16 hours, or 16 days, 20 hours and 41 minutes. Yeah, it's a very uh, fast time. That, that is flying. We had um, Abdullah Zainab, who was our videographer mm. for the 2017 version. He won the 2018 nitty pack. How do you think Abdullah would go up against Christoph? Um, That's the penultimate question. Look, Christoph is um, a unique ultra distance racer, probably one of the best. Well, not probably. There is only one Christoph. Um, how would Abdullah go? I think, you know, he'd give him a good run for his money for sure. Um, we've seen the incredible uh, performance he put into the indie pack, but um, the moving speed of Christoph is quite something. Like you've got to have it between the ears, and I think Christoph and and um, Abdullah both certainly have that. Um, I'm not sure where um, whether Abdullah has the the athlete athletic kind of ability that Christoph has because he's one of these unique individuals that um, his moving average speed is incredible, absolutely incredible. Like to be able to to do the stuff he does, like he can average 30Ks an hour for 20 hours but didn't Abdullah, through some incredible terrain. But didn't Abdullah um, finish it in the same time as what Christoph did in 2017? Yeah, but Abdullah had like a three-day tailwind coming out of Adelaide where Christoph didn't. Right. Like, do you remember that tailwind yeah. section? Oh, it was 60 kilometres an hour. Yeah. I got stuck behind it in the other way with the w- the wind smashing me in the face. We had to hunker down because the storm was so bad. Abdullah was ahead of that. No, I'm, I'm not, you know, saying Abdullah's not a great cyclist. He is a great ultra-distance cyclist. You've seen the performance. But... These were two different races. Yeah. Yeah. Like if what if if Christoph was racing this year's event, I still think Christoph would have beaten Abdullah. And I don't think Abdullah would object to that either. Mm. 
Christoph is just an, an amazing rider, but Abdullah is definitely an amazing rider in his own right, probably one of the top ten in the world. I think what's really embodies this is Christoph is the sort of bloke to go out and do this sort of thing regularly. Like you only have to look at his Strava and he'll go on three-day rides. Like he is passionate, madly passionate about yeah. this sort of thing. And I'm not saying Abdullah isn't again, but I'm saying that I think Christoph's in the next level. Yeah, like I think we've we've put this one to bed. Um, mm. We we think that Christoph and Abdullah are both amazing. Yeah, yeah, I think that summarises it. <laughs> you know, talking <laughs> about um, the the indie pack, obviously, uh, it, it wouldn't be a conversation if we didn't talk about the fact that the Michael inquest is ongoing. There was a hearing about six weeks ago. Uh, which you ended up going to. Um, and there were some good stories that came out of that. You know, Mike's mum uh, actually flew out from the UK and had an opportunity to meet the driver of the car. And uh, from what I heard, she very bravely um, held him in her arms. Yeah, she, uh, after the inquest, she. Um she spoke to his um, legal team and he, she spoke to the coroner and asked if they could have a sit down in a meeting and um, whether he'd be open to that. Um, he's a young driver, you know, he was on his piece when this whole incident happened and he was commuting to work. He has a young family and she realised that he hasn't driven since, he lost his job, um, he's now got his second child um, they've got a young family and, um, you know, he's obviously still very traumatized by the whole event. And she wanted to make sure that he understood that Pat, Mike's mum, forgave him and that um, she didn't want another life to be lost in this tragic event. So, yeah, it was really lovely. I was there with Pat whilst um, that happened and... Um, it was really nice to see her and, and to meet Mike's brother, Russell, who also made the journey but didn't want to be part of the hearing. Um, you know, she wasn't there trying to lay blame or to um, to bring Mike back because nothing's going to do that. But she just, yeah, she's a very special lady and, yeah, did an amazing thing that day. You know, it's a very sad situation because there's no winner. It doesn't matter the result of the inquest. You know, at the end of the day, nobody wants to see a young man on his pea plates go to jail for what no. could have been whatever reason it was. But, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say a, there is a, a thing in Australia. I mean, there's a lot of people dying, a lot of cyclists being killed by by people in cars um, and they say, I think I saw a statistic recently that one in six drivers get charged from killing a cyclist. One in six actually get charged, which is just absolutely ludicrous. And it goes in line with the um, with the things that we're seeing in, in the media in that the media are so reluctant to name the driver or talk about the fact that there's actually a person behind the wheel of these cars mm. who are hitting these cyclists and are responsible for the weapon that they are driving mm. in that moment. And, you know, you see in the media such and such got killed, you know, J Bill Jones got killed um, by a white ute or Bill Jones got killed by, you know, a, a, 
and and they keep talking about the car, but they refuse to name or to talk about the person inside the car. And I think if we were to see this as a pedestrian, a car going up onto a footpath and hitting pedestrians, you would definitely get the, the driver named. So what I'm seeing is, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here from your perspective, but what I'm seeing is, is this culture of the media just not putting blame. It's almost like the victim blaming. The cyclist is always at fault and they were killed by the car. What are your thoughts on this? Am, yeah, I, am I talking, I th- Chang? I think there was a natural position where people always assume that the cyclist is the reason why the, this incident has happened. A lot of people thought Mike was all over the road and that's Didn't why he died and, and he was not visible. And, you know, they're coming out with all these bloody theories without actually knowing any any facts. Um, and that's very evident of a lot of – what is that noise? Is that like a little, <laughs> We've little, got a little cricket? We've got a bird cheeping outside our window. He's a bloody loud little monster. Um, that's one angry bird. Um, yeah, so that that does seem to be the case and there's so many. It's such a complex issue in Australia. There seems to be a lot of um, aggressive drivers out there, a lot of time-poor people, distracted um you know, mobile phone use in cars is just horrendous. Every traffic light I stop at, there's someone on their phone. You know, as a cyclist, you look around and you're concerned about that. But then you also see a lot of young cyclists getting into cycling and they're they're not treating road users with similar respect as well. So you've got this issue of both sides of the coin, um, which is concerning for me as a person that's been riding pretty much all my life to do what I do on a bike and to never have had an incident and I'm doing 25, maybe thousand Ks on the roads every year to then watch other people have these incidents almost all the time. You're questioning whether, you know, what, why is this happening? Yeah, like, I have to agree with that. What roads are you using? Um, what, there's sometimes you're never going to be, like the most experienced road cyclist of our generation was killed on the Monaro Highway. So, you know, it, it can happen to anyone. But there's also this other argument about how are we educating the cyclists that we are riding with to better them and to make them better road users and how are we communicating with drivers in a way that if something has gone wrong, we're not screaming and shouting and trying to rip off their wing mirror and beat them with it. We're Mm. actually saying, listen, do you realize what happened here? You nearly took me out or I was in your blind spot. I shouldn't have been there. Or, you know, you didn't need to overtake me to then cut me off because I'm just going to filter through traffic anyway and you're still going to be sitting through traffic. Um, How are we having those conversations and who's having those conversations and are we responsible for those conversations? And I think ultimately we are. Mm. Um, It's like I was saying to you, I did that North Road ride the other day. Guys couldn't ride in the wind. They didn't understand that they were echeloning across nearly the other lane and it was dangerous. And it's like who is having the conversation here how are we having that conversation? 
And if it isn't taking place, then why why is it not taking place? Yeah, we almost need to, you know, for example, uh, you were talking about the North Road Road. This is you're specifically talking about the North Road right here in Melbourne, but uh, which I did last week. And I was in a bunch and there were guys slamming on brakes in the middle of the bunch and it was just dangerous riding. And, and, it, and to back your point up, we almost need someone at the beginning of the ride and at the end of the rides mm-hmm. to be having a chat with these people. Yeah. I mean, you, we almost need the TAC or Vic Roads to assign leader, team leaders of groups, you know, like leadership people within the cycling community that can – well, uh, I think wear a vest, wear a specific type of vest, and and educate people on how to ride. Yeah, but I mean, all the guys that are regularly at these rides, which there are many and they are numerous, there's leaders inside of that. It's just about giving these people a voice. It's about encouraging a conversation. Um, and I think you know, if you are at that ride often, I think you should be that voice. Who hey, me? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm just a bloke with a YouTube channel, really. I mean, I think... I'm just a dude on my bike, but I have mm. a responsibility as a human being that's part of the human race to look out for another person. If I see someone in trouble, I stop and ask them if they're okay. Can you help? Yeah. I think you, the other are you thing in is, a position? If you can, you must. I think the other thing is we've got to be a little easier on each other. You know, you see people, particularly in the road cycling world, on the roads, a lot of people abusing each other and, you know, yelling and screaming and all this rubbish. Yeah. And I think I've that been, needs I've, to stop. I've, I think I've a, done that. A and little I've, bit of empathy. Yeah. I, I've, I've, I've been at the other end of it and I've been the receiver and the giver. And I think it, it just, it's a bad cycle and we need to change that. Mm. Yeah. You know. You need to start having a conversation with your friends at the North Road ride. And I need to have a more open discussion with the people that I'm riding with more often as well. I mean, the funny thing is, is about these these group rides like the North Road ride is it's a, it's a collect group of people that really don't know each other. So it's it's difficult to, you know, that, that social element isn't there. I mean, we we meet at the ride, 40 riders. Most of us don't know each other. Uh, we do the ride and then everyone splits up and goes their separate ways. It's very difficult to sort of open a dialogue around safety to look at what we did right and what we did wrong. And even when communicating with drivers, Mm. you don't necessarily need to be abusing. I mean, for example, when I go out and I ride, if someone lets me in or or someone drives in a favourable way towards me, I'm always waving to them. I'm always saying thank you. Mm. You know, if if someone pulls up at a, a side street and just and even if it's my right of way and I keep riding, I'm always waving to them to say thanks for seeing me, thanks for looking, you know. And I think that sort of attitude, just be nice, be a good human, is is an important thing. It's it can be daunting, it can be ha- difficult, you know. Stand up in front of a group of men. And say, look, I know we don't know each other, but I come on this ride a lot and I just want to talk to you about being safe because I've been on this ride a few times now and I've watched guys nearly get cleaned up by traffic because they don't understand how to ride in the wind or they don't understand how to rotate in an efficient manner out of the wind 
or they don't know how to set up an echelon, they're not mindful of the fact that there's 40 riders behind them and if they don't set up on the left-hand side of the road and if they're slightly in the middle, that has a huge domino effect on the rest of the the riders behind them. Um, th- these are conversations that should always be in the back of the mind and, some t- and most of the time they're not. And yes, you're right, people are coming on these rides from all over the place and people don't socialise as much. Um, these guys are time-poor professionals that want to get in a quick hour, hour and a half before heading off and carrying on into the city and going to their jobs. So the only time to do it is at the start of the ride and it starts with one conversation, it starts with that first step and hopefully it, 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 it turns into something that's beneficial and it actually saves a life. That's what you've got to think about is being courteous to road users because the car that goes past these unruly rabble of riders that, that one day then goes up to a next bunch of riders f- further up the road but now they're enraged or they're upset and they're angry because they nearly took out someone and then the next minute someone else does it and they're just angry mm. and then they start hurling abuse and then something could go wrong. Something might happen that we could have avoided. I don't know what this solution is between this driver. I mean, I know that the media feels that there is a war between cyclists and drivers, which is an absolute load of crap. There isn't because 99% of people that pass me in a vehicle are awesome. But what it is... The media love to sell stories. It's slow for them and the way that people um, digest news these days is with outrage and car crash kind of television and that sort of there's a war between cyclists and motorists or yeah division you know, that they try to that cr- divide that that mentality is is created and it it's hardly factual mm. it just is there to sell space yeah but there is some education that's needed and you know a classic example is when you get a bunch down Beach Road, they're, they're tearing along at, you know, 45k an hour. They pass a, pass a slower bunch. They have to merge out into the other lane. Mm. A lot of cars don't, you know, some cars get it. They see what's happening and so they hold back and then they overtake when it's safe to do so. But then other drivers in cars will get, you know, get get angry mm. and get on the horn because they don't, see what's happening, this overtaking. So, and, and that's just one example that I'm talking about. I think across the board there needs to be some sort of education from maybe government. I don't know what the answer is, but it's frustrating. I think the responsibility is closer to home. I really do. It starts with us. So, and so what's the, specifically in that situation, what could we do individually in that situation? In the situation of overtaking another pack. Yeah, so one one bunch overtakes another bunch. What what could the individuals do if you if you're saying that it's not, you know, government sort of program education where you know yeah, so one bunch is overtaking another, yep. right? So it's one vehicle overtaking a slower moving vehicle. First, yep. they need to check that it's safe to perform and maneuver, right? So cyclists need to be made aware that there is an overtaking maneuver about to happen. So how do you set yourself up for that? Position yourself on the Just road. Get your, get your arm out and sort of wave. No, but you know what we I'm saying. We should start like manually If you want to have a sensible conversation about this, then here's your opportunity. So you've got to know 
that it's safe to, to overtake. You've got to have the foresight to understand that you are in command of 40 riders and you're all moving it in one body. So if you're the guy on the front, you're making the decision as to setting up with an overtaking maneuver. And then it's up to the guys at the back to also understand that that is taking place and to make a call of whether it should happen or not. That is how. It's just, I don't know how you can, unless you've got radio things and these guys don't know each other as well, you know. Why are guys that do not know each other riding in a bunch, trusting each other within millimetres of each other every day, but they don't know one another and they've never had a conversation? There's something wrong about that. Yeah, there is something wrong with that. So what I'm saying is let's have a conversation. Let's look after each other as human beings, irrespective of lycra or not. You've got to look after the road users and you've got to be a good human at the end of the day because yeah, they're human my, beings. Don't steal my catchphrase. No, but they're human beings inside cars and there's human beings riding bicycles. Mm. They're one and the same. Mm. So, yeah. Oh, I totally agree. It's it's Look – as I say, it is a complicated situation. I don't know how to solve it, um, but I'm sure. And, you know, we shouldn't be riding in a bunch where if you're overtaking a slower moving peloton, that peloton shouldn't be strung across the road. They mm. should be tight and on the left so we can pass in a single file mm. without yeah. obstructing traffic in another lane. Now, you've you've ridden in a lot of different places in the world. Um mm. Where would you say was your favourite place in terms of a combination of things, scenery, weather, and road safety? Out of all the places that you've ridden in the last couple of years? Yeah, it's interesting. Like, you know, I rode in Bangkok recently in Thailand, probably one of the most busy places you can be on a bike. And people are like, you're crazy. What are you doing riding a bike in and amongst scooters, heavy goods vehicles, cars, taxis, you know, it's absolutely nuts. But it looks chaotic, but everyone is a road user and they all treat each other the same way. That is, I will back you up 100%. Any Southeast Asian country that I've ridden in, even Bali, people are just respectful of each other. They are, and they're stuck in traffic, worse traffic than I've ever seen in Sydney or in Melbourne. And... Hey, this is part of the world that they live in. And there's no point getting upset because a cyclist or a scooter is filtering through or has come in front of you because you're not really going to get any further ahead than they are. They're able to filter through traffic and you're not. Um, So, yeah, that was really interesting to witness. A lot of these countries, um, especially Southeast Asia, amazing. Uh, Mm. Even in America, you know, there's, just vast networks of cycling, touring roads, road um, road users have a, a respect for, mm. yeah, for Australia, cyclists. Yeah, Australia's a bit of a funny one. Australia doesn't seem to have that. No, and I think what it is is people raging on expectations. You know, we're very, you know, I'll give an example, even just driving your car with other road users in cars. Mm. You know, some dude pulls out in front of you and does a U-turn and he probably shouldn't do a U-turn there, but he's doing a U-turn. Mm. A lot of people will rage if, if it holds you up, yeah. right? 
And I sort of think when someone does that, I'm like, yeah, dude, you're probably in a hurry. You know, you've probably made a mistake in the direction. Oh, just do your U-turn. That's fine. I can just wait. That's my philosophy, right? Yeah. But you'll see a lot of people will Hanger rage in those situations. <laughs> but but I suppose what it comes down to is just being nice to each other. Just being nice to each other, you know, in just across all situations. Even if it's some old person pulling into yeah. a park and they hold you up, just chill. Yeah, old people shouldn't be allowed to ride or drive. No, like they shouldn't. They shouldn't, yeah. Yeah. Terrible. <laughs> No, I think we should all um, take a leaf out of, um, you know, other countries' way of interpreting um, these sorts of issues and how they deal with them and the the fact that, you know, you can get a city that's probably got a population the size of Australia all getting along on the road and then you can barely drive down the street without being harassed or mm. almost being cleaned up. Um, yeah, I think it's just being mindful and thoughtful and, you know, being less. T- also, I think a lot of people are just so time poor and they're just so bad with with time management. They're always late. They're always in a rush mm. and they're always, um, always upset and anxious because of it as well. Well, Rhino, it's been a great discussion as always. You legend. We went for a ride last week. It was good to catch up. Yeah. But, we might um, even go for a ride today. We might go for a ride today. It's a bit windy out there, but we're going to get out there. But, um, mate, thanks for coming on the show. You're, you're most welcome. Sorry to bore you to tears, everyone, with <laughs> nonsense, drivel, and more nonsense. But, um, but we will see you guys in the next podcast, uh, and uh, I'm sure we'll catch up with Rhino again. I hope not. <laughs> I'm sure they don't want to listen to me carry on anymore. Goodbye and good night. You cracking humans. You cracking little cucumbers.